Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. The following episode on New York City and the history of comic books was originally released in July of 2015, but we're re-releasing it today because this week I'm the guest star on the newest episode of the podcast This Week in Marvel, the official podcast of Marvel Comics. So after you are done listening to this episode, hop on over to that podcast where I speak with hosts Ryan Panagos and Lorraine Sink about more history-related New York City comic book stuff. Uh, I guess in the comic book business, they call this an intercompany crossover, like uh, Superman meets Spider-Man or Archie meets the Predator. So please enjoy Excelsior! Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. I'm Greg Young, and I'm tackling a subject that I've been dancing around on the show for years, New York and the history of comic books. Now, we've done a few industry shows in the past focusing on New York City's role in the development of film, radio, and television. But comic books are a true homegrown industry, and for at least 30 to 40 years, starting in the 1930s, almost every major publisher operated out of New York. Many of the most iconic writers, editors, and artists were mostly all born here, in immigrant neighborhoods, and many from Jewish communities. In particular, superheroes often have a very specific connection to New York. Just as a horror story often takes place in a haunted house, or a western in a dusty frontier town, a superhero story most often finds itself in an urban environment, and for a lot of its history, that environment was New York City. The energy and diversity of New York, the romance of the city, is critical to the medium's growth right up to the Hollywood blockbusters of today. Now, just a disclaimer, this is a bird's eye view, a very broad history, a very broad scope of comic books overall. And I apologize in advance for glossing over any of the great accomplishments of many of the most important creators here. But it's not going to just be me rattling on by myself for this show. Later, I'll be joined by comic historian Peter Sanderson. Plus, this show is going to have a grab bag of fun little audio surprises. But perhaps the first surprise of this story of New York and the history of the comic book begins over 160 years ago to the year 1842. 
New York City, the year 1842. That was the year that the Croton Aqueduct was completed, finally bringing clean water into the city. Wealthy New Yorkers were building homes around the newly constructed Gramercy Park, but few people lived above 42nd Street. 1842, it was in that year that the very first publication that we might call a comic book debuted. It was called The Adventures of Obadiah Old Buck by Rodolphe Topher. This was a whimsical French swashbuckler, which was told in sequential illustrations with captions instead of speech balloons, which we would see in comic books today. It was a bit of an anomaly for its day, but the location of its New York publisher, Wilson & Company, is important. They were on Nassau Street near Park Row. This would be the birthplace of the comic strip. Now, let's flash forward 50 years later to 1895 to Manhattan, the Gilded Age city. Many newspapers had actually moved off of Printer's Row, but by 1895, two major players in New York's media empire were still centered here. Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and the New York Journal, owned by William Randolph Hearst. They were ruthless competitors, often employing outrageous stunts and unscrupulous journalistic practices in a quest to increase sales. In February of 1895, the magazine illustrator Richard Outcow debuted a new feature in Pulitzer's newspaper called Hogan's Alley, depicting life on the Lower East Side through the eyes of a strange little bald child who would come to be known as the Yellow Kid. So he was taken actually from the illustrator's own experiences in the Lower East Side. According to the artist, quote, I used to go about the slums on newspaper assignments. I would encounter him often, wandering out of doorways or sitting down on dirty doorsteps, unquote. His exploits were not only unique due to the format of what would be considered America's first comic strip, but also because of the novel use of color. The Yellow Kid would become so popular that William Randolph Hearst actually hired the artist away from Pulitzer, and for a time, both major newspapers ran a Yellow Kid strip. This curious, jaundiced child became so synonymous with these two newspapers that, as legend has it, Hearst and Pulitzer's less-than-ethical style would eventually become known as Yellow Journalism. Other comic strips followed, like Little Nemo in Slumberland, which debuted in the New York Herald in 1905, which popularized the idea of recurring or continuing storylines. After all, you're a bit more likely to buy a particular newspaper if your kids back home are clamoring for their Little Nemo. By 1912, the journal would debut America's first daily comics page. And thanks to newspaper syndication, soon the entire country was enjoying the antics of strips like Crazy Cat, Mutton Jeff, and Buster Brown. Buster Brown, by the way, was drawn by the same man who drew The Yellow Kid, but this time he based his character on a boy who lived in Flushing, Queens, and obviously a kid that clearly knew how to dress. Now, speaking of little comic strip scamps, on August 5th, 1924, within the pages of the fairly new New York Daily News, as that's the same Daily News that we still have today, came the adventures of a poor little orphaned girl, her dog Sandy, and rich old Daddy Warbucks. Little orphan Annie, you go smiling through, telling Mr. Trouble who's afraid of you. Let your worries ever cling to you. So 
you have nobody you can bring them through. Oh, the skies are cloudy, they're bound to clear up someday. Bluebirds will say howdy. That was a little bit of Coon Sanders' original Nighthawk Orchestra with their 1928 hit, Little Orphan Annie, one of the first, but hardly the last, comic crossovers to another medium. So to summarize so far in our story, the hyper-competitiveness of New York's media giants essentially built the comic strip industry as a way to increase sales of their newspapers. I also find it an interesting juxtaposition with another major addition to these papers, photojournalism. By the 1930s, newspapers had completely replaced traditional illustrations with photography. Drawn art appeared only as political cartoons, was contained within advertisements, and of course here upon the comics page. New York's second great contribution to the comics world comes from the great many writers, cartoonists, and publishers who grew up in the city's working-class neighborhoods, in particular, the vibrant Jewish communities of the Lower East Side, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. In many cases, these were actually the sons and daughters of immigrants who had just arrived a couple decades earlier. Occasionally, Jewish boys found an interest in publishing due to their work as newsies selling newspapers on street corners. That would be the case with Will Eisner, a young Jewish man from Brooklyn who would later become the comic scene's most innovative producer, most notably later with the crime fighter known as The Spirit. The creation of what we know as a comic book is really just an extension of the Sunday morning comic supplement, which some newspapers actually still have today. The first ran in Hearst's newspaper, The Journal, way back in 1896. He called the section The American Humorist, with the slogan, Eight pages of iridescent polychromous effulgence that makes the rainbow look like a lead pipe. Well, in 1934, that supplement finally separated from the newspaper in a magazine called Famous Funnies, which some considered the first modern comic book for sale. This collection of previously printed comic strips was the brainchild of a Bronx-born man named Max Gaines. Keep that name in mind, he's going to come up later. So that proved popular, this separate magazine with comic strips, so why not just make the same thing but with all original material? And so came New Fun Number 1, with new content and cranked out from a stuffy office at 28th Street and Park Avenue South. It was profoundly unsuccessful at first. Newsstands, after all, were afraid to take a risk on completely new characters. And its original founder eventually lost his financial backing, but not before one final release from that 28th Street office, Detective Comics Number 1. The company's new head, Harry Donenfield, another Lower East Side resident and a publisher of Pulp Fiction and Girly magazines, well, Harry kept Detective Comics going, eventually employing two bright creators from Cleveland named Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. And so, in June of 1938, came a special delivery to the newsstands. Action Comics, number one, with a tale by Siegel and Schuster of an unusual new character that had been long gestating in their imaginations, a creation that was out of this world. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than an airplane, more powerful than a locomotive, 
impervious to bullets. Up in the sky, look! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! And now, Superman. A being no larger than an ordinary man, but possessed of powers and abilities never before realized on Earth. So that was a clip from the very first episode of the radio program, The Adventures of Superman, first broadcast on New York Station WOR in 1940. They were obviously still working out that whole faster than a speeding bullet thing there. It featured the first great superhero, Superman, the heroic alien from outer space who disguised himself as the mild-mannered Clark Kent, Superman. So that's how you say it, not Superman, Superman. While there had obviously been other super-powered beings in comic books at this time, I mean, isn't Popeye just basically a superhero with a good diet? It was Superman that made the superhero genre stick. The comic was a runaway success. What followed between 1938 and 1944 was the introduction of a host of classic characters. Comic collectors refer to this era as the golden age of comic books. Many of these would be produced by the publisher of Detective Comics. They would eventually, after a couple merges of companies and things, would eventually name themselves after that title, Detective Comics or DC. They were headquartered at 480 Lexington Avenue near Grand Central, and it would be here that a great many of these classic superheroes would be developed. So I mentioned earlier Will Eisner of the Spirit fame. His high school friend from the Bronx was named Bob Kane. Kane, collaborating with writer Bill Finger, unveiled to the world on May 1939 the brooding millionaire crime fighter Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. The Batman. He projected the residents of Gotham City just as Superman watched over Metropolis. Both of these cities are stand-ins of sort for New York City. Gotham City technically borrows its name Gotham from Washington Irving, who coined the nickname way back in the early 19th century. Metropolis and Gotham City are probably two of the most famous made-up places in the world. But are they actually New York? Well, I read a quote from DC comic writer Dennis O'Neill. I read a couple versions of this quote, but this one seemed the most commonly quoted, which said... Gotham City is Manhattan below 14th Street at 11 minutes past midnight on the coldest night in November, unquote. Metropolis was originally modeled after Joe Schuster's birthplace, Toronto, but has morphed into a more New York-style city over the years. The 1940s brought more popular superheroes, The Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman. In fact, DC soon had several rivals for this lucrative superhero comic book market. Perhaps DC's biggest rival was Timely Comics, who produced such wartime heroes as the Human Torch in 1939 and Captain America in 1941. Timely's heroes were smacking around Nazis left and right during the war. Captain America even punched Hitler in the face on a popular comic book cover. They were so relentless and incredibly popular with American kids that the Timely staff actually received death threats from pro-German New York organizations. Employees were even afraid to leave their offices at the McGraw-Hill building on 42nd Street. What made this extra disturbing is that Captain America was created by Jewish writer Joe Simon and Jewish artist Jack Kirby, who was born on the Lower East Side back in 1917. Fortunately, New York Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia had their back, calling the timely office after one particular threat and said, quote, 
You boys over there are doing a good job. The city of New York will see that no harm comes to you, unquote. I just want to add that, yes, it's been a bit of a boys club so far on the show, but in fact, there were many women in the comic book industry by this time. Perhaps the most famous today was Patricia Highsmith, later known for her works The Talented Mr. Ripley and Strangers on a Train. She worked at Timely Comics in the late 1940s after they moved from their offices at the McGraw-Hill building to a much loftier home, the Empire State Building. Highsmith wrote at a peculiar time for comic books after the war. Superheroes were actually passé in post-war America, and many titles were being canceled in favor of westerns, crimes, romance comics, and most notably here for the story, horror comic books. Now, you remember that name Max Gaines that I mentioned earlier in the show, the man who created one of the first modern comic books? Well, by the 1940s, he had started a new company called Educational Comics, or EC, specializing in illustrated stories of historical events or tales from the Bible. Well, in 1947, Max tragically died in a freak boating accident, and control of the company transferred to his son, Bill Gaines. Seeing this non-superhero change in the marketplace, in 1950, Gaines decided to delve into the world of crime and horror comics. EC's office were at 225 Lafayette Street in Little Italy, just two blocks away from New York police headquarters. Now, I bring that up because Gaines and his creators would produce some of the most vivid and graphic tales ever seen in the comic book medium through books such as the Vault of Horror, Shock Suspense Stories, Weird Science, and Tales from the Crypt. It was these types of stories, but certainly not only these, that led many moral crusaders of the day to condemn comic books as an immoral influence, a gateway into crime and sin, easily corrupting America's children. By the early 1950s, cities throughout the country were beginning to ban the sales of comics, and church groups were hosting large comic book burnings, big bonfires of burning comic books. Leading this anti-comic charge was a New York psychiatrist named Frederick Wortham, employed at Bellevue Hospital, who made his case against the comic book industry based upon data he obtained at his own clinic in Harlem. In 1954, he published a damning screed against the comic book world called Seduction of the Innocent, where he laid out the case for banning comic books altogether. And so here's the danger of actually having the entirety of one particular industry in one place. Had Wortham really succeeded in his efforts, New York could have passed a host of laws that could have effectively eliminated the comic book business. Things came to a head on April 21st, 1954, during a U.S. Senate subcommittee for juvenile delinquency held down at Foley Square in Lower Manhattan, a subcommittee headed by future presidential candidate Estes Kefauver. Both Dr. Wortham and Bill Gaines testified at the hearing. It was such an event that this entire hearing was broadcast live on WNYC. So here are actually a couple snippets from that subcommittee hearing. Now, I apologize for the sound quality, but it, it's just extraordinary to hear these actual men's voices arguing the pros and cons of violent comics. 
The first clip that you're going to hear is Dr. Wortham taking a break from attacking horror comic books to attack a more popular figure, Superman. I would like to point out to you one other crime comic book which we have found to be particularly injurious to the ethical development of children, and those are the Superman comic books. They arouse in children fantasies of statistic joy in seeing other people punished over and over again while you yourself remain immune. We call it the Superman complex. And in these comic books, the crime is always real. And the Superman triumph of good, and every child knows that, is unreal. Moreover, formerly the child wanted to be like daddy or mummy. Now they skip you. They bypass you. They want to be like Superman, not like the hard-working, prosaic father or mother. <coughs> and here's a clip from the introductory statements by Bill Gaines, defending his company and making a really harsh insult directed at Dr. Wortham. My father was proud of the industry he helped found. He was bringing enjoyment to millions of people. The heritage he left, the vast comic book industry, employs thousands of writers, artists, engravers, and printers. It has weaned hundreds of thousands of children from pictures to the printed word. It has stirred their imaginations, given them an outlet for their problems and frustrations, but most important, given them millions of hours of entertainment. My father before me was proud of the comics he published. My father saw in the comic book a vast field for visual education. He was a pioneer. Sometimes he was ahead of his time. I was the first publisher in these United States to publish horror comics. I'm responsible. I started them. Some may not like them. That's a matter of personal taste. It would be just as difficult to explain the harmless thrill of a horror story to a Dr. Wortham as it would be to explain the sublimity of love to a frigid old maid. My father was proud of the comics he published, and I'm proud of the comics I published. We used the best writers, the finest artists. Unfortunately, Gaines would eventually shut down most all of his horror comics, all of his properties actually, except one, a humor comic that he transferred into a magazine-sized publication to avoid some of the industry's self-imposed censorship. That humor magazine, of course, is Mad Magazine, which is still published today by DC Comics. To Wortham's great lament, I'm sure, the comic book superhero came roaring back into popularity in the late 1950s with an infusion of new characters and talents. This is the beginning of what we call the Silver Age of comic books. This would be driven again by DC, who reworked several of its older characters like The Flash and Green Lantern, and by a new surge of creativity by its rival, Timely, under a new company name, and under the leadership of one particular man named Stanley Martin Lieber. We'll get to his story in my discussion with comic historian Peter Sanderson after the commercial break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. 
The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes a Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look. Overhead. And now I've flown the coop from our recording studio in Brooklyn, and I am now in Central Park because we have no humidity, and uh, it's a beautiful day, and I'm here meeting with a great comic authority on DC and Marvel and every other comic book that has existed since the beginning of time, <laughs> of Peter Sanderson. Thank you very much. He is sitting here on Perched Upon a Rock, just like I am here in Central Park. Oh, good to be here. <laughs> Thank you. I like being in Central Park. I'm going to the zoo after this. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. And to see the see the, polar, not the, the grizzly polar bears, bears, the, grizzly the new bears, grizzly bears, right. Betty and Veronica, named after Archie <laughs> characters. <laughs> so uh, give uh, our listeners a little bit of, of your background in the comic book industry, because you have worked at both of the majors and have been very crucial in their continuity. I would say maybe they're especially in their archives. After many years of writing fan letters to the, to both DC and Marvel Comics, I started to meet a lot of comic book professionals, many of whom were my generation, mm -hmm. and eventually I got invited to start doing work at the companies. And my first project at DC was being hired basically to read through the DC Comics library, the entire library. <laughs> in so like action comics number one through. No, before that, that. Okay. More, more fun stories with mm -hmm. Doctor Occult. This was research that was intended for background for Crisis on Infinite Earths, but also provide the groundwork for the who's who in the DC universe, which I, I helped write the f first few versions of that. And then Marvel simultaneously, pretty much simultaneously, asked me to start work on research and writing for the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, and I worked mm -hmm. on the first several versions of that through the 80s, 
and was on staff at Marvel off and on. And starting in the 90s, started writing books for companies like Abrams and uh, Simon Schuster and DK about comics history, more often than not about Marvel. Even do, writing a travel guide to New York City in terms of the Marvel travel guide right. to New York City. Uh, yeah, you specifying wrote the book on this subject. It's speci true. <laughs> specifying locations in New York that have been used in the comics. Buildings like, uh, for example, we're not we're just within 10 blocks of the Frick Collection, a mm -hmm. famous uh, millionaire's townhouse that's been turned into a museum, which Stan Lee says was the inspiration for Avengers Mansion. Sounds like you could talk about every era that um, this show's going to be about, but just specifically on Marvel, we, I set them up actually when they were timely comics, of yes. course, uh, which is up until the 50s. They then briefly became Atlas, right? When In the sort of non-superhero era, was Yes, that um, so superheroes pretty much, uh, initially superheroes were really a fad that happened at the brink of World War II and during the during the World War II years, a lot of it wasn't just kids who were reading superhero comics. It was soldiers, you see. It was young people in the military. After the war, superheroes faded from popularity very quickly. And by 1950, 51, except for Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, those were the only characters that kept their own books. Hmm. And the very first superhero comic that came out from Timely was actually called Marvel Comics Number no. One. But oh. the company, the line of comics, was called Timely. And the timely name sort of faded away, too. Instead, Martin Goodwin, the publisher, started running this Atlas logo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the 50s, they were doing a lot of science fiction and, and most famously, the giant monster comics that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko <laughs> were doing. So, so you, as you just mentioned, Stan Lee was already by the, with the company by the time in the late 50s. He oh, had, and right? he had been with the company much earlier than that. Mm -hmm. He has been from at Marvel almost from the very beginning. Marvel, originally known as Timely, mm -hmm. was created by a publisher of pulp magazines named Martin Goodman. And for Marvel Comics number one, he sort of outsourced the comic stories to a, 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 a comic book studio. But then he decided to put together his own staff, and he hired the writer-artist Joe Simon, who brought his creative partner, Jack Kirby, the, fake, the great artist. Mm -hmm. Goodman decided to hire an intern for them, what we would now call an intern right. or a gopher. <laughs> you know, a, a lowly assistant. <laughs> so he hired a distant relation named Stanley Lieber, who was still a teenager. Hmm. Now, Simon and Kirby had been at, at Timely for a year or so and had done the first year of Captain America stories. They had a falling out with Goodman and left the company oh, and went to, went to D mm -hmm. what is now called DC. Mm -hmm. So Goodman's sort of looking around, well, who can be the editor now? Who can run the company? And he's looking around, and, and he, the only person he really spots is his teenage re distant relation <laughs> on his wife's side, I think. And he was so 19 or something, right? He's, 19, he's, 19, he's like 19 when he becomes editor at Marvel. <laughs> and supposedly this was going to be a temporary position, but except for the few years that Stan was in, the army mm -hmm. during World War II, he would stay the editor until the early 70s. <laughs> and 
Now, his name was Stanley Lieber, but he's, Stan had dreams of writing the great American novel. And back then, comic books were regarded oh, yeah. as lowly stuff for stupid children. I mean, they'd been dragged to the mud thanks well, to Well, not yet, William. not yet. Oh, it not it yet. got okay. much worse in the 50s. <laughs> okay. It's, it was in the 50s that the, the government started coming right, after right. them. But even in the 40s, it wasn't, you know, wasn't considered high-class material. Now, Stan was trying his hand at writing, so he wanted to save his real name for the novels that he would someday write. Mm -hmm. And so he adopted a bunch of pen names for his various stories. And the one that, that really stuck was Stan Lee. So Stan was already you know, this creative force. He kept on being the, being the head editor and the head writer for decades, and even through the bad times in the 50s. Mm -hmm. There were points at which uh, good, at least one, maybe two points at which Goodwin decided that they had too much inventory material in the office, so Stan could not buy anymore for a while, so Stan was left as the only person in the uh, Atlas the only offices. Editor, the really? only person. only person. They had to let all the ar artists and staffers go. So he really is the root of the Marvel Comics. At one point, he's the only root. <laughs> yeah, and I think by the start of the 60s, things were getting better, and, mm -hmm. he, and Kirby came back after he, his p partnership with Simon came to an end. And this set the groundwork for right. the start of what mm -hmm. we now think of as Marvel right. in the early '60s, which is probably what you're going to ask about next. Yeah, it is. Well, I was going to. I was going to say. So there was this. Uh, it was, I guess, the beginning of what we would call the Silver Age, and so I guess other uh, companies were having new success with new characters. Editor Julius Schwartz at DC Comics, who in 1956 relaunched the Flash, who was mm -hmm. one of the stars superheroes at DC in the Golden Age. And what Schwartz and his collaborators did was they came up with a new character to be the Flash, Barry Allen, who is mm -hmm. the Flash who is on the TV show yes. right now. They gave it a much sort of more modern, more sophisticated artistic look thanks to artist Carmine Infantino. Mm -hmm. The writers like John Broom and Gardner Fox gave it much more of a science fiction feel. And this was a hit. And Schwartz had success coming up with new versions of other Golden Age characters, Green Lantern, the Atom, Hawkman. Mm -hmm. He relaunched DC's big Golden Age superhero team, the Justice Society of America, as the Justice League, League of America, which is, again, a huge hit. And Martin Goodman, legend has it, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's true, I think that, I've Martin, heard this legend, that Martin, yes. Martin Goodman <laughs> was playing golf with the DC executive, and the DC executive was boasting about the success of the Justice League. So Goodman. Apparently, Goodman had a habit of when he noticed a new trend in pop culture, he'd tell Stan, well, we need comics in this genre. So he apparently told Stan, I want you to create a superhero book to compete with Julie's Justice League. Keep in mind, Stan had been editor at Marvel since he was a teenager, <laughs> and he was now pushing 40. And also keep in mind that thanks to Dr. Wortham and government busybodies in the 50s, who were claiming that moral crusaders, the yeah. moral crusaders, who said kids who become juvenile delinquents, they read comics, and as I think Stan himself pointed out, you know, they all drank milk too, and that didn't <laughs> turn them into JDs. But it's like, a, but anyway, the idea had, had got about that comic books were not just lo a low grade of reading material, but they were corrupting mm -hmm. and they were immoral. And Stan has to told people in interviews that this was a period when if he went to a party and somebody asked him what his job was, he'd say, oh, well, I'm in publishing. And if they pushed, well, I, I do children's <laughs> books. And because he did not want to admit he was doing comics. So it's it like, and he still yeah. hadn't gotten anywhere near his great American novel. Mm -hmm. So it, when Goodman gave him this uh, assignment, create a new superhero book, 
Stan was on the verge of quitting, but Stan talked to his wife, Joan, who gave him this good advice. She said, well, why don't you write a comic book that you yourself would like to read? Don't write down to what you think the audience is. Write what you yourself want to do. And this led to all the innovations that we think of with Marvel Comics. Give the characters multidimensional personalities. Give them human flaws. Deal with real emotions. The first product of this was getting together with Jack Kirby and together they created the Fantastic Four, who Fantastic Four number one came out in 1961. Mm -hmm. This was revolutionary. When you meet them on the very first page, they're quarreling with each other. Another one of the revolutions about about this is that the superpowers are presented not necessarily as a blessing, but as a curse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But one of the heroes is a monster. Yes. And again, this is a huge revelation. Superheroes were typically these handsome men and women. And And instead, this this was a monster who had a terrible temper, but was nonetheless a good guy. He became this sort of tragic figure, this this sensitive human being who is trapped in this grotesque body. Well, another key to his personality also is the fact that he was, Ben Grimm was uh, from the Yancey Street gang, right? The Thing turns out to have grown up on Yancey Street. Now, there are some (laughs) stories Uh that that I've seen where it looks like Yancey Street's on the west side, but actually it's clear, it's clear to me, although it's surprising <laughs> to me how many people I know in comics who never th- realized this till I told them about right. it. It's clear to me that Yancey Street is meant to be Delancey Street Delancey, on the lower right. east side, uh, which is the area where Kirby grew up. Similarly, Steve Rogers, Captain America, came from the lower east side. Nick Fury grew up on the lower east side. Huh. You know, there are a number of the core Marvel characters of the 60s who, you know, they're very much New Yorkers. You mm-hmm. cannot re- really say that Superman, even though, even, <laughs> Metro- even though Metropolis is a disguised New York, but Spider-Man or The Thing, or in his way, Doctor Strange even, he's based in this mysterious townhouse, and it's in Greenwich Village, because Greenwich Village in the 50s and the 60s had this reputation as, you know, when it, obviously when rents were much cheaper, mm-hmm. but it had this reputation as a center for bohemians, for yes, artists, culture. For, for cultural outsiders, people on the fringes. You know, the general public in the 60s in the Doctor Strange comics thought of, you know, they didn't really believe in sorcery. They thought Doctor Strange is some sort of weirdo who, was, uh, <laughs> who, who pretended to have magic powers, who was sort of like what maybe we'd call him now a new age yeah. type mis- mystic or healer. Well, but again, it was a very New York thing to do to put him in Greenwich Village. And, you know, this is one of the things I really like about Marvel is that Marvel is picking New York as a real place. Stan has said it made the stories more real to him if he could set them in real places. And the more often that Marvel uses real places in their mm-hmm. story, the better I like it. It gives it, even if you've never been to New York, I mean, I think people all over the country, all over the world, know a lot. Uh-huh. Know about places like Central Park or the Empire State, State Building. Building. Yeah, they're yeah. just they're they're just instant triggers. People can put themselves in a place and re- and interact with those characters in and a much e- and more even, realistic way. And even way. if you don't know, it gives you a certain amount of texture. For example, I was reading some of Frank Miller's Daredevil stories last week, and he has uh, Karen Page arriving back in New York City, and she's at Penn Station. Mm-hmm. And, a, and I like the fact that it's Penn Station, and it's. I, I, even if you haven't, even if you've never been to New York City, you don't know what Hell's Kitchen is. The fact that <laughs> you know, you know that Frank puts Daredevil stories in Hell's Kitchen again. I think it gives it a, a texture, a, a depth of detail. 
that helps the stories. And it's from this era when Hell's Kitchen, of course, was a much more violent place than it is in 2015, where it's mostly well, Thai restaurants. Well, that, that is the funny thing about Stanley and Bill Everett created Daredevil in uh, who first appeared in 1964. Even then, it seemed a little bit of an anachronism because it's basically, a st it's like a 1930s, 40s boxing movie about, you mm -hmm. know, because Matt Murdock's dad is a, is a boxer or wrestler. There are different versions of different <laughs> retellings, but it's like who has to, who's under the thumb of a criminal who, may, who wants him to take a dive in the ring and, and he refuses to do it because he won't let his son down and he ends mm -hmm. up winning the fight but getting killed by the mob and then Matt becomes Daredevil to avenge him. But it already reads like, you know, this is the 60s and it already reads sort of like a 30s, 40s story. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, that's when Stan and Everett were, were young. We're, and, we're young, right. you know, and they, those movies shaped their, their sensibilities. And when Frank Miller comes along in the 70s, in the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, he identifies it as Hell's Kitchen. Now, I was here mm -hmm. in New York in the 70s and the 80s. I had a friend, a good friend who uh, used to live in the upper upper end of Hell's Kitchen uh, visit her all the time in the in the 80s and it's like this is a dangerous neighborhood because it's already beginning to change while right. Frank was I'm writing those stories yeah. you know he has this line in, in one of his dead old stories that this is the Hell's Kitchen the worst neighborhood in New York and now it's incredibly gentrified like mm -hmm. so many much of New York and it's it's going upscale but in Marvel Comics it's still a bad place. <laughs> in Frank's Daredevil stories, when you went to Josie's Bar, it was just a hangout for lowlifes and criminals, whereas Josie's Bar in the Netflix series, it's sort of like this, this trendy dive bar where Froggy and Karen go hang out mm -hmm, themselves, mm -hmm. and Mac go hang out themselves. So it's like, it's yeah, locals, locals go, yes. but so do the new, <laughs> new yuppies who are right. arriving. So it's like the fact that New York has been so important to Marvel is the reason why the Netflix Daredevil series and the other Netflix Marvel series are being filmed are here. Are being filmed here, and it's actually improving the the, the, the TV and film production of New York, which is already thriving now anyway, so it's yeah, great. I, I have begun to wonder whether the Marvel se Netflix series are going to be like the new law and order, that every New York, <laughs> yeah, every sure. New York actor is going to end up <laughs> appearing in, in a Marvel show sooner or later. Good. But even in the movies, you know, they're not all set in New York, uh -huh. but a number of them Number of them are, I think that New York is very much a character in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Mm -hmm. You know, even down to the, uh, the Flatiron building being the location of the Daily oh, Bugle. That's, yeah, that's one of my favorite details of any comic book movie, actually, is the use of the Flatiron building. As, I mean, because it's already an iconic building, and to sort of have it have like an, an part of an iconic story, it just adds all this and, energy. And also it's like in the Raimi movies, Spider-Man is actually sort of a local New York hero. It's like in one of them, there's this, one of them opens with this sort of big celebration for Spider-Man mm -hmm. where uh, Gwen kisses him on stage, and mm -hmm. you may recall. And that's like, like New York turning out to honor their local superhero. Or in the first Avengers movie, where the climactic battle is inside and right outside Grand, Grand Central, Central Terminal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or uh, the second Iron Man movie, in which we find out that Howard Stark, Tony's father, was one of the forces behind a New York World's Fair that was held 10 years after the, yeah. <laughs> after the actual 64 World's Fair. But nonetheless, you know, New York is very much a part of these movies, a character in these movies. Mm -hmm. And I think, why is this? It's because New York has been so important in the comics. It made it more real for Stan. And also, putting all the superheroes, most of them in New York City, oh, right, meant, that they, sure. meant they could interact with each other. It was easy to do crossovers. Like, there's, a, there's an Avengers story that Steve 
Engelhart wrote, in which Patsy Walker, who started out as a romance comics mm-hmm. character in the 40s and later turned into a super, Steve turned her into a superheroine. But she talks about coming to New York, how she left her small town home to go to, quote, to come to see, quote, New York and the superheroes, unquote. It's like <laughs> the superheroes, I think, in Marvel's view, reflect New York. And of course, you would want to see, you know, characters who can fly through the air or swing on ro- webbing or ropes. Through, mm-hmm. the, through the sky like Daredevil or Spider-Man, that you'd want to see them swinging among the skyscrapers of New York City, which become like towers of, ca- sure. of castles or, or mountaintops for, yeah. the, for the gods. This is the <laughs> modern-day equivalent. I mean, and how would Spider-Man even get around if there wasn't tall buildings? You know, I mean, he's really a custom-built character for an urban environment. Well, this know? is why superheroes are basically an urban genre. It's very rare that you see a superhero story that isn't set in a big city. I mean, I even wonder the periods like... Recently, Daredevil has been sent back to San Francisco. No, it doesn't have enough tall buildings. <laughs> doesn't really work. I mean, New York is the center it's for where the, the tie. Yeah, it's where the ties for these characters were. I mean, it's in their DNA, pretty much, right? Anyway, Spider-Man. So, yeah. So finally, let's. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to just talk a little bit about Spider-Man because he is actually a queen superhero. He is a queen superhero. He is from Forest Hills, Queens, and again, I think it was much less upscale. But 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 yeah, he he said. He's in one of the outer boroughs. He's a kid. He's going to high, even though the, the, strangely enough, his high school is titled Midtown High, which makes <laughs> it sound like it's in Manhattan. But he's going to school in Queens, and it's, like, it's sort of to make him more of an outsider. You know, sure. he, but, but as Spider-Man, he gets to play with the big boys fighting supervillains in New York City and getting attacked by, <laughs> by a major news, New York City newspaper baron, mm-hmm. J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> and again, he's... He's this, the contrast between being this smart, bespectacled high school school kid in an outer borough mm-hmm. and being this superhero who gets to uh, make newspaper headlines in the big city, play with the big boys. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's, it, he did not have an easy time with his powers also. They were, they were often like a curse for him as well. It's times. not so much that his powers are a curse. It's the fact that he, his superhero ide- identity becomes a curse because curse. he has to keep on being Spider-Man, even though from time to time he tries giving it up mm-hmm. because he has this sense of responsibility. He cannot sit back and let anyone else come to harm. That's the curse. It's his duty and it's his curse. So many things that you just uh, mentioned, uh, I talked. About, I feel like I talked about it in the first section. So it is, it is these, these things that course through the whole history of comic books from the very beginning. And every, everything from the immigrant culture to the, to the humor and, and, of course, the physicality of New York City being brought into these characters, too. Well, Peter, I really, really, really thank you for sitting here on the rock with me here in Central Park. Now, you are heading off for the Central Park Zoo. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. And I am heading back to the studio. <laughs> So, back to the recording studio, thanks to my trusty Batmobile, also called the F-Train, to take you up to modern times in New York's comic book history. So, most of what I discussed with Peter, that was in the early 1960s. Marvel's taking off with new characters. DC Comics is doing pretty well. Batman is on television by that time. Something curious is happening while all of this is going on. Those kids from the 1940s who grew up with all those amazing comic books, became adults and found actually that those comic books had value. Starting in the 1960s, you had comic book conventions where like-minded collectors could begin to form a community. 
The first New York convention was in 1964, but they really took off in the late 1960s and 70s with the Comic Art Convention held for many years starting in 1968 at the Statler Hilton Hotel at 33rd Street and 7th Avenue. Today, that is the storied Hotel Pennsylvania, which is across the street from Madison Square Garden. New York City's first comic book store opened in 1971 called Super Snipe Comic Book Emporium, located on the Upper East Side at 83rd Street and 2nd Avenue. It was opened by comic enthusiast Edward Summer, and his co-owner, his name was George Lucas. Just as comic books were becoming things of serious value and comic art items of serious study, the American comic book industry began to sprout up in other cities. The underground comics movement in San Francisco of the 1960s and 70s gave us creators like Robert Crumb. By the early 1980s, a new alternative comic book industry was providing all of these new comic book stores that were opening across the country with titles that didn't need to appear on a mainstream newsstand. Marvel and DC, which were they were both still in New York, continued to have a hold on those methods of distribution, of course. New voices from different American cities emerged, particularly the West Coast. For instance, you can definitely feel the identity of Seattle through comics like Love and Rockets by the Hernandez Brothers and Eight Ball by Daniel Klaus. One very popular alternative comic from the 1980s reinvented an old New York legend. You know the one about alligators that lived in the New York sewer system. Well, these weren't alligators. These were turtles. In 1984, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird riffed on that particular legend with the instant hit Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, characters I believe every parent in America is probably familiar with. New York City was used in a very profound way by Art Spiegelman, who used the comic form to tell the story of his parents' experience during World War II in the Auschwitz concentration camp. Originally published in an alternative comic he produced called Raw, Spiegelman then bound the stories into a burgeoning publishing form called the graphic novel. Now, graphic novels had already been in the ether by this time, but this graphic novel, which he called Mouse, would pretty much change everything. And it has a deep tie to the borough of Queens. Spiegelman recounts the story of Auschwitz as his father is telling the story in his home in Regal Park, Queens. The book won a Pulitzer Prize in 1992 and opened the door to a new literary appreciation of the comic book form. Speaking of graphic novels, I should mention one more that many people first discovered actually as a graphic novel, but in fact it ran as a series of single-issue comics in 1986 and 1987. That was Alan Moore's Watchmen on DC Comics, a gritty and extremely dark fable that broke down the superhero genre in a way that was disturbing for its time. I mention it because... It is probably one of my favorite depictions of New York City in a comic book ever. It's literally toxic with anxiety. It's incredibly moody, as though the past decade of New York City history, this being you know the mid-1980s, from the high crime rate to the urban decay, seem to be pressing into the background of the pages. The comic is one of the finest works of art in the 1980s in terms of capturing the decade's paranoia. And believe me, things do not turn out well for New York in that story at all. Today, 
Comic books are a billion-dollar industry, not just as comic books, of course, but as movie and television franchises. And some are seriously considered great works of art. We do live kind of in an amazing, wonderful world that could not have been envisioned in the days of Dr. Frederick Wortham, a world where you can have comic influences of a wide range. You know, you have the Avengers defending against aliens in a billion-dollar movie who are tearing up Midtown Manhattan, or the extraordinary 2014 comic memoir by Roz Chast called Can't We Talk About Something More Pleasant? about the heart-rending death of her parents in Brooklyn. In both of these cases, of course, New York plays a big role in the story, obviously, and could be considered a minor character. I'll be interested to see what happens this year. 2015... Well, you still have Marvel Comics headquartered in Midtown Manhattan, but DC Comics, the original Detective Comics, DC, as of this summer, have moved out of New York for good and have moved out to Burbank, California. The medium of comic books have reached a new plateau, and obviously going forward, Hollywood's going to play a very important role in the creation of many of these. So you never know, perhaps we might see a CW television series about the yellow kid, or fingers crossed, a film adaptation of the very first comic book character in the world, Obadiah Oldbuck. And who knows, he might be played by Channing Tatum. So that is my complex, rip-roaring, and dizzying story of New York City and its role in the history of comic books. Check out the blog BoweryBoysHistory.com because, of course, being a very visual medium that I just discussed, this will have a lot of great images of some of the comic books going all the way back to the beginning, including Mr. Obadiah Oldbuck. I want to thank Peter Sanderson for joining me for a little part of the show to talk about uh, his experiences and thoughts about Marvel Comics. But I also want to thank someone I could not have done this show without or the past two or three shows. Tom and I are indebted to our intern, Dan. This is his last show for us this summer. But if the show has sounded better... It has been mostly because of him. He has worked so hard, and we really, really appreciate it. So, Dan, thanks. Come back and see us soon. And one more thank you. That is, of course, to those who are supporting us via Patreon.com. We are completely blown away by the support. And so thank all of you on Patreon for supporting. If you'd like to support and you're not already, please go to Patreon. Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Bowery Boys for more information. So thank you very much for listening. Tom will be back on the next show, and we've got a doozy of a subject on deck. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.